It's Wednesday, January 17th. It's 2.40 in the afternoon. I'm Eric Zorn, the publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, a weekly newsletter that you can subscribe to on Substack. I'm filling in for John Williams, the usual host who is at an undisclosed location this week. I'm Kate Flies, former um, Chicago reporter and columnist, now uh, in charge of a strange Chicago history website called Roseland Chicago 1972. I'm Brandon Pope, host of On the Block, powered by Block Club Chicago on WCIU, um, and host of the Making Podcast on WBEZ. I'm Marge Halperin, journalist, commentator, activist with Indivisible Chicago, here happy to join the mincing rascals. Good to have all of you here. I want to start by talking about Iowa. The caucus was held on freezing Monday night of 18% or so of Iowa Republicans braved the cold, turned out, and they gave a narrow majority to Donald Trump, but he managed to beat his uh, three opponents that were still left in the race, maybe four. I guess there were four, if you count Asa Hutchinson, by about 25, 30 points, something like that. And my question for the panel is, is this race over now? Should we stop paying attention and just start thinking about November? You mean in terms of Republicans? Yeah. I mean, is it is it now just going to be Trump and Biden? We forget about the other candidates, forget about Nikki Haley and trying to figure out whether Ron DeSantis has lifts in his shoes or something. Is this uh, should we just <laughs> move on from uh, not pay attention to what's going on in New Hampshire? I mean, maybe I'm I'm being pessimistic here, but I, I do think that it's kind of a done deal as far as Trump is concerned. I know that Marge, you, God love you being so optimistic, pointing out to us that almost half of the Iowans did not vote for Trump and did vote for one for either Haley or uh, DeSantis. But I don't see that going forward. I think the Republican voters have shown they will just not be deterred from Trump. So I think that once he takes the lead, which he kind of already has, I, th- I think it's it's just going to snowball from there. And certainly anybody who was supporting DeSantis or Haley is they're going to vote for Trump. They're not going to vote for Biden. So, yeah, I see it as a done deal as far as the Republicans are concerned. Marge, done deal? Well, I do think that the nomination is a done deal, but um, I appreciate your kind view of my perspective, Kate. But, you know, you boil it down, it's 7% of the voting population of Iowa who just overwhelmingly went for Trump. He had a strong field operation this time, which he hasn't invested so heavily in in the past, but this time he did. And he did have a large majority over the two second place followers because they both claimed second place, but only one actually made it. And yet it was a small number of voters, half the turnout from 2016, for example. But I, you know, three quarters of a million registered vote out of three million in Iowa and somewhere around 15 percent, you know, braved the cold to turn out and a just over half went for Trump. But so I think there's still a Republican constituency, an old Republican constituency that doesn't want Trump to be the nominee. Will that grow or will they fall in line, as you suggest, behind the Republican nominee because he has the GOP label? I mean, that's the question that none of us can answer until November. I feel like the big strategy that the never Trump Republicans are hoping for here. And even those that are kind of iffy on Trump at this point is okay. He wins the nomination. 
by, you know, these caucuses and, and primaries. But once we get to the actual RNC, where people have to put in their delegate vote share, they're hoping that with the avalanche of cases and hopefully a court case happening at the same exact time, that delegates have a change of heart and say, you know, we got to scramble and find somebody else, which I think is a long shot. I think that's an extreme long shot, but that's what they're hoping for at this point. So I understand the strategy if you're Nikki Haley of playing for number two in that sense. She Uh, certainly seems to be, doesn't she? Yeah, but if you're Ron DeSantis, I don't. Because at this point, the person who's made the sharpest differences from Donald Trump is Nikki Haley. She's the one that set herself apart the most of, of any of them. Chris Christie. And, and Chris Christie, even though yeah, now, now he's dropped out. But I'm saying of, the, of those that are there, uh, you know, the person that would be more likely for the never Trumpers to go with probably be Nikki Haley. If you, especially you look at the national polling, uh, she destroys Joe Biden in national polling if you were to believe those. So the strategy is a long shot, but that's got to be the only way they're doing it here. But no, I think it's eventually it's going to be Donald Trump. It's going to be Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. And that's what we're going to get round two. And we'll see what happens when the two are facing off for the second battle between the two. So we'll see what happens. The fact that Haley and DeSantis finished with roughly 20 percent of the vote each rather than the voters, the anti-Trump people coalescing behind one candidate was ideal for Trump, that he now has these these two candidates who are fighting it out for scraps behind him. If Haley had emerged much more strong, she had, say, taken him 30 to 15 or something like that, that that would have been really trouble. For Trump, but you know he doesn't have anybody dropping out of the race right mm-hmm. now. Ramaswamy did, but you've got those t- the other two who are hanging in there. That seems like it just sets up perfectly. Trump is probably not going to do as well in New Hampshire. New Hampshire voters are are much more independent, and also you don't have to be a registered Republican to vote in the New Hampshire primary. And there's no meaningful Democratic primary, so you could see independents and Democrats going over to support Haley or DeSantis and putting a scare into Trump there. But then he moves on to South Carolina, where Trump is really strong. I know it's Nikki Haley's home state, but Trump has been polling really well there. And then following that comes Super Tuesday, which is a lot of Southern states. So I don't really see a path for Haley or or DeSantis. And I also have been picking up, certainly from things that Haley has been saying in interviews, that she's really angling for the vice presidential nomination. She has not been as critical of Trump. Even lately, she's kind of pulled back. So I don't. I think this is over and that we can really stop paying attention. We can, we can watch with some amusement at what happens in New Hampshire, but I don't think it's going to make any difference. You said independents and maybe Democrats would cross over to vote for either Haley or DeSantis. What do you think is the best matchup for a Democratic win? We had a rolling debate about this at dinner with friends the other night. Is it best that we have Trump-Biden so we can just shut it down, thinking that we can shut it down? Stakes are very high. Or would Democrats be better off if it was Biden and someone else? I'll answer that for myself, which is that in 2016, I was kind of excited that Trump was doing so well in the primaries because I thought that Hillary Clinton was going to beat him in 50 states plus the District of Columbia, that people were never going to turn out or vote for this reprobate game show host. And having been really wrong about that, disastrously wrong about that, I am really reluctant to say, well, 
Trump is going to be easier for Joe Biden to beat. Therefore, we should hope for that, that Trump wins. I, I think any opportunity that anybody has to try to get Trump off the stage, off the political stage, they should take, even though it's probably true that Nikki Haley would be easier for uh, we have an easier time over Biden and, and DeSantis might also, although he's a fairly charmless fellow. I'm I'm actually surprised that he did as well as he did. He spent a zillion dollars in Iowa and, and just about two years there. And to come up that short was, uh, so to speak, he did not impress me with his his results. So, so the the issue that's standing out to me, I keep hearing about this, is immigration. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that. I don't think anybody here is really an expert on it. But it it seems to me that that immigration has really risen to the top of a lot of voters' concerns. It's it's not just this migrant crisis here in Chicago. It's it's people who are in part, parts of the country that are not affected at all by illegal immigration or, or people crossing the border without documentation. In you know rural Montana, they're all exercised about illegal immigration. They're probably never going to see an illegal immigrant in their lives up there. What should the Democrats do to blunt the criticism of this? Because it looks right now like the Republicans in Congress are going to stand in the way of any kind of compromise or reform agreement that they would like to see this problem continue to fester so they can talk about open borders. And what, what, what did uh, Trump talk about? The the poisoning of the blood of America with these people coming in? It's a, it's such a vexing problem. It's interesting, Eric, because I feel like what the Republicans have done, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I hate to be the guy that defends Republicans here, but I'll, I'll be that guy. They have actually done a great job strategy-wise of communicating border issues to places that aren't border towns and how border issues may impact them. Now, do they over-dramatize some of these things? Absolutely. You know, there's many communities that have issues with fentanyl, have issues with drugs in their communities. And there's many Republicans like Ron DeSantis who make that connection between fentanyl coming across the border. Now, we know that there's other sources of fentanyl than just coming across the border. Some of it's homegrown as well. Um, but that is part of the strategy they've been doing and part of the playbook they've done. And overall, it's worked. That's the issue here. The strategy for Republicans has been a long game. They're playing their book to a T. And the Democrats seem to be on the defensive more than offensive most of the time. And so when you're always in a stance of playing defense, 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 it's hard to really get a winning position. And so at this point, even independent voters, by, by polling, or what I'm looking at with polling, there's a CBS News poll of independent voters showing their views on the border. They lean towards the Republicans on this because the Republicans have done a better job of selling their case and making their strategy and making the issue plain to other people. The Democrats have to do a better job of explaining their side of this and why they feel like we need more humane border policies as well. Marjorie, strategist, what do you think? <laughs> you know, there's... The way the Democratic talking points have been going is to counter defensive, as Brandon is saying, the statistics. You know, we don't have open borders. In fact, there have been more arrests, I think twice as many arrests this year as in Trump's last year. People are slow to be processed for asylum, but the people in our country here and in our city, the people being bust up here are here legally because they're waiting for asylum and for a hearing, and Republicans are refusing to give more money for more immigration judges, money that would have more border patrol agents, things that would speed up the process for those who are waiting for asylum. There are some solutions that Republicans won't support. We don't talk enough about it. We need 
as clear a strategy as building the wall, which is ridiculous because the wall, as we know, was porous at best. But we're not hearing the things that Republicans won't agree to. Biden takes his three-point plan to speed up, uh, expand the immigration hearing process so that we're finding out who qualifies and who doesn't and sending back home those who don't and incorporating and welcoming those who do, being more giving federal control over the border instead of the state control. I'd like to hear some stronger words against Abbott, who is blocking federal agents from accessing the border at the cost of a mother and two children last week who died in the Rio Grande because Texas claimed they didn't see the family struggling, but they wouldn't let federal agents in to help them. So we need to be clear with a two or three points. I don't think it's build a wall simple, but three good points about managing the border, which would include the value of immigrants in our country. We have a shortage of workers in healthcare, in retail, in agriculture, in the areas where our economy is dependent on workers who come from other countries because those born and raised here tend to not want to take those jobs. So if that's one of our factors that we want to speed up the asylum ruling so that we can protect people who come to us for a better life and who deserve a better life than they're getting their home country, manage the border effectively and welcome new workers into our economy because we need them. And Republicans refuse to let any of those three things. There's clarity in that. But I'm not sure what Biden's proposal really is. That's what I think it ought to be. But if I don't know what it is, they're not getting the message across. Kate, do you know what it is? They're definitely not articulating a good message. As you were saying, Marge, most of the people who are coming up here are technically here legally because they're asylum seekers. But the Democrats are not articulating what they would do about the fact that the immigrants are, are now all claiming asylum because that's the way to get into the country. And everyone is aware of that, that most of them are economic migrants, which we all understand why they would do that. And yet it's definitely corrupting the whole asylum system. And But I'm not hearing what the Democrats would plan to do about that. So as long as everybody claims asylum, it's not a solution to just get them through the judicial process as quickly as possible. We have to figure out what's an upper limit of asylum seekers that's good to have. And at the same time, I'm also not hearing them. Maybe they are, but I'm not hearing an articulation of what they would like to do to actually fix the system of allowing high-skilled workers in, because we all know that there's a huge bottleneck where people cannot get in, the higher skilled workers cannot get even green cards to even if they have jobs waiting for them. And that's a gigantic problem as well. I have an issue that keeps coming up in in letters that I get. People say, well, okay, so when you go from Venezuela to the United States, you got to pass through Colombia and Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, the Honduras, uh, El Salvador, and then Mexico. All of these countries are are not Venezuela. And if you want to get out of Venezuela, if you're being threatened there or whatever, why can't you ask for asylum in any of those 
places. Why do you go all the way to the United States? I, we, we know, as Kate says, we know why they come to the United States. It's a land of much more opportunity. But the question is, is it up to the United States to be the as an ideal landing spot? Are the people who are seeking asylum entitled to seek asylum in the most ideal place or just a place that's safe from their own, uh, the ravages of their own home country? Part of that's the United States' fault. We're great at the branding. <laughs> land of the free home <laughs> with the brave. <laughs> This is the the American dream, all of that. Like that's you go anywhere across the country, especially Latin American countries. They love America. Much of their culture is still centered around a, a view of America with eyes on America, America's stars, America's celebrities, America's sports stars. They see that as why wouldn't you want to come to America? Honestly, if that's the case, instead of going to Colombia, that may just be moderately better. So, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from, but I just think America for the, for the longest has promoted itself for immigration, said, hey, come on through. I mean, it's on the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, we, we lift our lamp beside the golden door. If you're coming yeah. from Europe, I guess, right? And why not? <laughs> I believe you have some initial screening when you make an asylum application, Kate. I don't think all you have to do is claim asylum and then automatically be let through the doors indefinitely. There's some documentation, I believe, that they provide. But nonetheless, why aren't we welcoming? Why don't we want immigrants who statistically show, especially Venezuelans, by the way, have a higher degree of education statistically than native-born Americans, uh, United Statesians, as many South American countries call us instead of Americans. So, you know, they have a high level of education. They have a lower level of crime. You know, you could name all the illustrious immigrants who have contributed great science and and medical advances and all that to our country and who among us are are Native Americans, not my family. My family welcomed from pogroms in Russia, and I'm glad that they were um, making a harrowing trip in a boat that sank right outside of uh, New York City, and they made it anyway. So lucky me. And why not lucky Venezuelans? Like, why why don't we want them? We want an orderly process. We don't want people streaming over the border and not being taken care of, or worse yet, dying in the river on their way over. We don't want them shipped here in buses or planes or any other Texas-funded means when we aren't prepared to take care of them and give them the proper welcome to our country. But the basic premise that we don't want immigrants. But I don't think it's fair to say people don't want immigration. Most people, I mean, I don't talk to anybody who has that view, but just, I think you answered your own question. We don't want them in an uncontrolled manner coming across the border. And of course, the way it's happening now, it's just profiting cartels who are doing the What's the term that they have for that? Coyote. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say coyote, but I wasn't sure if I had that right. So they're just profiting greatly over right. this whole process of getting people to take these incredibly dangerous journeys, because right now it's a winning strategy. I'd love to pivot to what I really want to talk about, which is Dean Phillips, because I did hear an interview with him. Explain who Dean Phillips is for those who are not totally following the Democratic primary, such as it is. Okay. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter if people are following the Democratic primary, such as it is. I doubt hardly anyone has heard of Dean Phillips. If I hadn't happened, because I don't always, I just happened to turn on the TV when Bill Maher was on and see him interview Dean Phillips because HBO was on the TV when I switched it on. And otherwise... I wouldn't have even known who the guy was, but he's not some nutcase. He's a three-term 
U.S. representative from suburban Minneapolis and well-regarded, well-respected, who simply decided that he would run because he truly thinks that Joe Biden is not up for the job, should not be running, and somebody needs to nudge him out because the Democratic hierarchy will not do anything about it. So that's who he is. You know what, coverage-wise, I looked it up because I thought to myself, what if I hadn't seen him on Bill Maher? So I looked it up in the archives. The Sun-Times has mentioned Dean Phillips' name once, once, this whole time. And that was when he actually announced his candidacy on October 31st. The Tribune has mentioned him five times, but each time all they've done is just name check him. Here's this completely pathetic person who will never win who's running. And that's it. And that's including the editorial that they wrote, I want to say in November, talking about the fact that Biden should not run Someone else should be running for the nomination. And then they still gave Dean Phillips the back of the hand and didn't really say anything about him in their editorial. Even the New York Times, even though they've they've mentioned him, but they, too, have only name checked him in about 18 articles. They had one real article about him when he first announced. And that's it. Anyway, Dean Phillips thinks that what we should do is have people apply for asylum in their country of origin and set up some kind of protective area for the asylum seekers who are applying at the embassy or near the embassy, because his point was that way they don't make the dangerous journey here. And the people who are there on the ground in their country are much better able to investigate and figure out if they have a good asylum claim than people here in the United States who have no idea about anything in their country, have no way to research their claims. I actually wonder about that. How do these immigration judges who hear these asylum claims, how do they even begin to evaluate, especially people who claim they're being politically persecuted? You know, I can't imagine. Can't call witnesses. I, I don't know. I mean, that, that sounds like a very expensive proposition that he's talking about, setting up camps True. and be really easy for people to, to, <laughs> to go to those places. I don't know how big they'd have to be. But yeah, I, I actually saw that interview with, with Dean Phillips also on Bill Maher. And I thought he was fairly impressive. And and clearly the, the issue with a candidate like that is he just doesn't have any money. If J.B. Pritzker, for instance, or Gavin Newsom or one of these dem- these Democratic governors with deep pockets had decided to run against Biden, you can bet they would have been more than just name checked in the local papers that they w- there would be some serious conversations and and maybe even some debates. Having looked into him a little bit more this past week. I didn't know he's rich himself. He's got like $50 million. Hmm. So he funded the beginning of his campaign. In the last quarter of 2023, he only got a million dollars in donations, but that's something. And now that the hammer's really starting to come down, he is getting in with these bigger donors. So like he just had a chat on X with uh, Bill Ackman, who's got $4 billion, according to Forbes, and Elon Musk. And for instance, Ackman just gave him a million dollars to start off a super PAC. So it's not like he can't raise money. Ackman's a, but Ackman's a piece of work, right? Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. Not... Who isn't at that level? I guess that's you gotta right. You got to get your money from somewhere. All those big level donors, none of them are going to be any less controversial than, than Ackman. Marja, I, I don't know if I've asked you this before, but are you um, among the Democrats who 
Thanks, thanks, Joe. You've done a great job. But now uh, here's your rocking chair and your gold watch and go sit on the porch and enjoy your retirement while the next generation takes over. Or are you go, Joe, go? I'm in the latter camp because that's the world we live in. He wasn't my first choice in the last race. But once the party coalesced behind him, so do I and vigorously so. I think he's got an amazing record. He's passed more progressive legislation, I think, than any president since LBJ. What he's done with the infrastructure law and the drug prices and climate bill, you know, there's a long list of the things that he's achieved that were on our progressive checklist. And so I'm happy with that. He knows how to get things done Look at how he's managing the new speaker, I think, in a pretty impressive way, getting month by month. I don't love the continuing resolutions short term, one after the other, but it is a way to avoid a real disaster for the country. And I think he understands how to negotiate and has a long history of that. Frankly, I'm, uh, well, maybe I don't want to be so frank. This is the team we have. And he and his vice president are the team that are going forward. And I think we have to embrace that. Maybe that's what the evangelicals think about Trump. You know, he's so imperfect, but he's the only guy who gives us the patriarchy we want. Well, I think Biden's the only guy who can give us the real progressive leadership that our country so, needs. So, so Brandon, you think the uh, performance at Biden in the polls, which is not very stellar, is related to just bad messaging at this point? I think that's a big part of it is bad messaging, because as Mars just eloquently put, his record is pretty rock solid. I mean, more people are working now than at any point in American history. We have economic highs we haven't seen since the 1960s. Bidenomics, it's working. You know, that's the thing. If you want to go off the numbers itself. But I also think there is a reality here. People hear the numbers, see the numbers, but not everybody feels the numbers. And it's been that way for a long time. But I think people have reached a point maybe a peak point, a boiling point, where our economy already hangs on with people by a thread. Many people are just, it's, it's really getting to a pivotal moment where it's just like, they're barely breaking even. And so you're looking at, at a new generation coming up, my generation, millennials who are becoming a, a dominant force in the electorate. You got Gen Z coming up and they're looking around, they say, hey, uh, what's happening for us in our future? What is being set up for us? What are the stakes for us? And they don't see a lot of optimism in Joe Biden. So I think that's reflective in the polling there as well. But I think the messaging has been bad. The record is good, but it's not being communicated well. His, his people get more defensive than offensive when it comes to talking about his record. There was an interview that I encourage everyone to listen to on the New York Times podcast, The Run Up with Ested Herndon, where he interviewed Kamala Harris. Now, this should be a slam dunk moment for moment for VP Kamala Harris. She's popular with a with a large part of the Democratic base, black women. Um, this is your chance to really go in on that. But instead, it was very basic questions he asked that she got very defensive about defensive about economics, defensive about people feeling stress with inflation. She was just really defensive and even dismissive of questions about that. And that's been every Biden administration official. That's been Harris. They don't have the right people messaging for them at this point. And at this point, American people, whether they are Biden supporters, Democrats, independents or Republicans, 
They don't want to hear excuses. They want to hear answers. They want to hear wins. You got to communicate them better. And I think the messaging has just been so, so off. It might get better once we get down to two, once we get down to Trump and the alternative, right? But right now, it's lacking. Yeah, I I mean, I think that you've got a candidate in Trump who seems to be just looking backwards all the time. Mm -hmm. He is just picking over all the grievances that he's got. You know, 65% of... uh, Iowa Republicans in that entrance poll, the caucus, said they thought the 2020 election was stolen. That is the big <sighs> lie. And it's it just taken place. And and you've got this party that's looking backwards. And then you've got Democrats who are trying to look forward. And and I do agree that the messaging has been bad. But I also would, would point out that it's still January. There's a lot of politicking to go. There are a lot of people who are not paying attention at all to this, who are not listening to podcasts like this, who are who are waiting until September, wait until Labor Day to clue in. Maybe they'll watch the conventions. Probably not. The conventions are kind of a snooze. Or maybe they'll watch the debates, which will probably happen in September and October. And that's when they're going to start making up their mind. And and I don't think you're ever going to peel those 40% Trumpers off there from the from the pant leg they're clinging to, and I don't know that uh, you need to worry about forty five percent of Democrats who are going to vote for Biden no matter what. Uh, it's that fifteen twenty percent in the middle that's not sure that likes some things about what Trump did. It doesn't necessarily want the chaos that Trump is bound to bring. Is kind of worried about some of the things that he has said, and you're going to have to really hammer on that. And I and I really keep thinking that abortion is going to be a really, really big issue for a lot of voters who are kind of in the middle on this. They're going to think, well, you know, the Democrats are are um, in favor of women's reproductive autonomy and Republicans really aren't. And you've noticed that in some of the Republican messaging lately, which is they're trying to go like, oh, well, we're, you know, we're, we think that some limits should be applied. And in fact, you know, the, the party is really dedicated to uh, not having any abortions at all. Eric, have you noticed that even Trump is trying to be more moderate on abortion? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have noticed that. It's fascinating. (laughs) You're the one that got rid of Roe versus Wade, and now you want to act like, well... Well, he's he's been trying to have it both ways. He's been talking. Yeah, I'm the one who got rid of Roe v. Wade. It's a miracle, he said the other day. It's a miracle I got it done. And then and then when you ask him, he goes like, "Oh, well, there has to be exceptions for you know rape and incest, and uh, and six weeks is too early, and so on." So anyway, but I do I think that's going to be a, a huge issue. Can we let's talk about a local story that has everybody talking this week, which was the what happened at the Bulls Ring of Honor ceremony Friday night at the United Center when they introduced a bunch of the uh, players and and coaches from that era to the audience and they inter- and they introduced uh Jerry Krause who uh, died several years ago uh and his widow Thelma was there to I don't know I don't know what they did they give them a, a pendant or something I don't know sure what they did but when they announced uh Jerry Krause's name uh his the crowd booed and this caused Thelma to begin crying and it was just this moment that had everybody Shock the TV announcers, the commentators, the columnists, everyone is, is wagging their finger saying that this is a, a, an embarrassment on the order of uh, Philadelphia fans booing Santa Claus or, or with the, the, what, was the, what was the name of the family yeah. that uh, the father and son who attacked a first base coach? It was a Comiskey Park then, the White Sox home game. Remember that? So uh, what was your reaction to that? I just want to go around the table. To, if you, you, I'm sure you've heard about this story. What was your reaction to it? Kate? What are the Bulls thinking of? What they must just be desperate for publicity, right? They came up with this whole ring of honor thing to give themselves a nice big PR stunt. 
Then they only gave themselves six weeks to put it together, apparently. I don't even understand why you would go through with something like that when you can't even get the big people like Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. All right, you're never going to get both of them in the same room, right? But at least one of them to come. So they really just rushed this through. And, you know, I'm not a Bulls expert whatsoever, but I just sort of absorb everything that my husband is constantly watching. And yet, even I, at my far remove, would have known that Jerry Krause was going to get this kind of reaction because that's how big the whole anti-Jerry Krause thing was. How could they have not seen that coming? I cannot get the picture out of my mind of that poor Thelma Krause in her wheelchair. It's just heartbreaking, really. Marge, did you watch this or hear about it? I'm reminded how Mayor Rich Daly used to turn down appearances at sporting events. Like, you know, they're all drinking. They're going to boo. They're going to be, it's going to be negative. You're in an environment of people who are, you know, emotionally charged and drinking. So that's a bad combo. If the Bulls don't know what their audience is like, and if they don't know, as Kate said, maybe they didn't see the last dance and don't know, you know, (laughs) how people feel about it. But I'll bet they did. And therefore, getting Michael Jordan to come and support Krause would have been a lost cause, probably, because it's his film, basically, right? So, you know, it was utterly predictable from a communication standpoint, which is, you know, my day job. You don't put on an event or invite a speaker if you don't know what they're going to say in an environment like that. And it's pretty easy to know what was going to happen here. They didn't vet it properly. They, On the other hand, you know, maybe there was just a immovable force of someone high up who was convinced they had to do this no matter what, because that happens when you give good advice, not always taken. I, I seem to remember that, like that, Pat Quinn would when he would do things, he would make sure that he was introduced along with a, a, a superstar at the same moment, like at the uh, <laughs> at the Hawks rather they'd say, "Please say hello to Patrick Kane and Governor Pat Quinn." Yeah, <laughs> that's smart. And everybody would applaud. They can't boo Patrick Kane, so you got to clap. Smart. But uh, Brandon, are you uh, watching this with any uh, with any care? I was uh, not surprised by fans' reactions, but still dismayed. Um, And I think it goes to show how successful Michael Jordan's been in his spin of what happened with the Bulls. The Last Dance happened to the the great documentary series that was very Michael Jordan centric and Michael Jordan biased. And Michael Jordan's narrative is that Jerry Krause said, no matter what, we're going to end this thing. You guys are done. Now, is that narrative true? That's for other people to decide. But because that's the most recent form of media out there documenting this amazing Bulls dynasty, and there's a lot of people who did not grow up with the Bulls dynasty who watched it, that's what they believe. And so I think that contributed to the reaction you got because the dominant narrative of this iconic sports hero, this giant of Chicago, is that Jerry Krause ended All the good times for the Bulls. He's the reason why the Bulls have been so downtrodden, because his ego said, no, no Phil Jackson, no Michael Jordan, no Scottie Pippen. That's it. Six and you're done. Now, is that true? Hey, I don't believe it's I think there's there's many other sides of the story. You have to remember Phil Jackson had a part to play in this. His guy did not want to coach. He had Jerry Reinsdorf as well, who he's the owner. If he wanted to keep the team together, could have done the same exact thing. 
could have held that team together. They could have went for another run. Yeah, Michael Jordan, who had already quit at one point. People don't want to hear this. They don't, they don't like me talking about this. I know I'm in <laughs> Chicago, but Michael Jordan, he quit on the Bulls and played for the White Sox and all that type of stuff. Then he came back. We all know the story. They don't want to hear he's a quitter, but he did quit. And narratives work. <laughs> and Michael Jordan has crafted a great narrative. And that's what was ultimately the downfall of this event. I think the Bulls are right to celebrate all these people, especially Jerry Krause, who put that team together, who at a, at a time where the GM role was not very pronounced. At the end of the day, though, if you're the Bulls, you have to know your fans are very anti-Jerry Krause at this point. I also go back to, I don't know how you handle that, because you have to honor him. You have to honor Jerry Krause if you're going to do a ring of honor. You have to introduce them at three, it's like three at a time. So yeah. A big round of applause for Scotty Pippen, Michael Jordan, Intrad- and Jerry Krause. <laughs> right. yeah. And that also brings you to why, why was there no Michael Jordan? Why was there no Scotty Pippen? I would say weather. I think that's probably the main reason. I mean, it was <laughs> what flights are getting canceled like crazy. But it just wasn't a good look for you to have this ring of honor ceremony and honoring the greatest moments of Bulls basketball and not to have two or three of the biggest stars at that moment. It was glaring. They absolutely had to arrange that event around at least one of them. And maybe but maybe you could have gotten them together and say, look, you guys, bury the hatchet for one night. But figure out when those guys can be there and then see if Will Purdue can make it or Luke Longley can fly over from Australia. I mean, you know, or don't tell them. <laughs> Don't even tell him. Well, you know, the idea of that the last dance narrative has made Jerry Krause a, a more toxic figure, I think, was true. As unfortunate and embarrassing and ugly as what happened on Friday night was, I think that it is part of what will end up being a rehabilitation for Jerry Krause. That a lot of things have been written about him since then have said, like, yeah. He was, uh, he wanted more credit. I think as, as Phil Rosenthal said, he, uh, he didn't get as much credit as he wanted, as he deserved, but he thought he deserved more credit than he, than he, uh, than he actually did deserve. There was some, some sweet spot in there that he really was the architect of these teams that he came to the team with Michael Jordan was, I think, his first or second year, and the team was not doing well, even with the superstar Michael Jordan. He carefully assembled a team to fit the strengths of Michael Jordan and to win those six championships. Or, you know, he was famously, uh, you know, derided for saying that organizations win championships, players don't win championships, uh, which sounded really bad, but is in some ways quite true. We just have to look at the Chicago Bears right now, that the Bears organization, they've had some talented players on that team uh, but they have never had the right mix of good players. They they don't seem to know what they're doing organizationally. Jerry Krause, for all of his faults, knew what he was doing when he built that team. And we have six championships. That was just one of the greatest eras in Chicago sports back in the early 90s and, and late 90s when they won those six championships. I think that it, without last Friday's event, we just would have, you know, Jerry Krause would have faded into history as the villain who destroyed the team. And that was that. And there's been a lot of sort of reevaluation, reappreciation of him this past week that doesn't necessarily gainsay this narrative that that he's the guy who broke up the, the team too early, but it does underscore his contributions. And I, and I think in the long run, it's going to be good for him as awful as it was for his widow she may end up realizing that this was for the best. It's 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 fascinating, man. I just sports fandoms. I think booing is a lame thing to do anyway. I've never been at a sporting event and booed anybody, and I'm a big sports guy. 
I just feel like the whole act of booing is just like it takes a lot of negative energy within you. <laughs> I don't care how much you drink. It just feels weird to do. I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like booing's for losers. I would never boo a player. Uh, I would boo a coach, and I and I have I, 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 <laughs> coaching coaching decisions like a, a coach who doesn't go for it at fourth and one, you know, something, something like that. I I would boo that decision. I don't boo the quarterback who throws the ball poorly, but I do. I have booed coaches before, and they get paid well enough to to uh, <laughs> make it. You have your know? standards. <laughs> and let's sit, let's hit one more topic before we wrap up, and that's this, this issue of bike lanes in Chicago. And there was a, uh, an excellent front page story in the Tribune today about the Dickens Greenway, I think it's called, where they uh, have blocked off a whole big parts of, of Dickens up on the uh, on the near north side, sort of connecting Oz Park with the uh, with Lincoln Park. And I think it goes a little bit further west than that, too. And the community was just in an uproar about this. There are people who are really in favor of this. who think that biking is the future of the city. And uh, we need to make it make our streets much more bike friendly. And then the people who are saying that this just gets in the way of, of traffic, it slows everybody down. Uh, it's a bad thing. We've seen a lot. I think last past year, the, our 2023 was the most aggressive year for bike lanes in the history of the city. What do you think? Guess read that story or have any thoughts about the expansion of, of bicycling in Chicago? We have a very passionate biker community here in this city. Boy, do I know it because I get so many messages from them that I have anti-biker bias. For full disclosure, I do not know how to ride a bike. I might be one of the only humans in the world that does not. So I don't have the biking experience. Um, but I do think there are benefits to uh, expanding bike access, making sure that bike lanes are there, but also making sure that the bike lanes we have are safe because uh, we've had some that just are not in safe locations for bikers. But bikers have to meet people halfway as well. You got to use the bike lanes and you also got to follow the traffic laws. And I think we live in a city where there's cases of great bikers out there, but there's also cases of bikers who act like a red light is not a red light for me. It's a red light for everybody else. A stop sign is not a stop sign for me. Stop sign for everybody else. And they get mad when they get into an accident, but really it's something that they cause. So I think there's got to be accountability, but I say, yes, bike lanes should be encouraged. It's more ways to make a city like Chicago more accessible, lower carbon emissions, make us a greener city, a more eco-friendly city. But there's got to be some meeting halfway on the safety and how people are going to follow those rules. I do drive more than I bike. So bikers would consider me really in the same camp as you, Brandon. I, I know that from reading Streets blog. They do not want to hear hate us. people who, who, say, who say they bike, but then criticize other bikers. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, I wouldn't even count as a biker. I definitely, when they started... For instance, here in Hyde Park, the first big thing they did was um, cut down 55th Street, which used to be two lanes in both directions, is now one lane in both directions from the lake to Cottage Grove. And at first, I was not crazy about that. I admit it. But that was a long time ago. I, 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 I definitely now feel like, yeah, it's worth it. Uh, really, you know, every few big main arterial streets would be great if they could do that, yeah. if they would, I wish they would, number one, do it in a better manner than they do in a lot of places. But number two, I totally agree with Brandon that the bikers are not completely doing their part in meeting everybody else halfway, as you put it. 
there's going to be pushback from motorists not wanting traffic slowed down. That's that's going to happen all the way along. That's fine. It's just is what it is. But it would help a little bit if bikers did more of them improve their etiquette. I know it's probably a small percentage of them, but I know that I see it constantly still. Bikers going through stop signs, going through red lights on the lakefront path. Forget it. They are an absolute terror on the lakefront path. So that's what I would like to see. I know it, the the Dickens Greenway that we're talking about here, a big part of the controversy is the Greenway being extended more officially through Oz Park, Dickens being the southern boundary of Oz Park. And, and bikes were already allowed there, but apparently it's more officially part of this this greenway now. So part of the opposition was people fearing for their small children on that, that bike path if it became more traveled. And also there's a lot of Lincoln Park High School students who walk through there. I was actually just serendipitously bringing a friend to a vet's office across the street from there last week. And I was noticing it is a, a like a freeway through that park for the uh, Lincoln Park High School students. So that's certainly true. I understand it's 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 dangerous on the lakefront path for small children. So I'm sure that's going to be an issue in Oz Park. You know, the bikers want cars to go slower on the streets and they're right. But the bikers need to go slower through parks and through intersections on the lakefront path. And they don't. It's an issue trying to you know make sure that the bikers follow traffic laws. And, and the other thing is that these Bike paths, when they are protected by bollards, when when cars can't get into them and you can't have car doors swinging open into bikers, that that makes everybody uh, happier, I think. And yeah, it slows down traffic, but uh, you know, I, I live just off Elston Avenue, and having the uh, the bike path there, it's not a protected bike lane, but it's uh, it certainly has made when I would would ride into the Tribune occasionally, it's, it makes it a, a much nicer a much nicer ride. I do think, as Brandon pointed out, there are a lot of incentives for having uh, more bicycle traffic. All the great cities of the world embrace bicycle riders. You know, you go to, I was in Scandinavia this summer and all the big capitals there, bikes are almost the right of way on roads. And we need that if we're going to address climate and traffic and all these other things. I think in some ways, car drivers need to go with the flow. You need to see what's coming, what's good for the city. And there could be, again, some kind of marketing campaign that tells us why we're embracing this. I'm remembering, and I don't know if this was related to the Dickens Greenway, but I kind of think it might have been there was a woman in Lincoln Park just a couple of months ago in the fall who was complaining that the bike lane blocked her family's access to the front door of her home so that she needs to get the baby in the stroller out and all that. And she couldn't because of the bike lane And then when the camera pans back, although it was not mentioned in any of the television coverage that I saw, and I saw a few stations, but when you pan back, you saw that she was, in fact, in an illegal place. That is, no parking here to corner was in front of her. So she had been enjoying an illegal parking place for quite some time. That wasn't her issue, and that wasn't an issue brought up. had to do with the bike lane, but her car just plain didn't belong there. I, I do think there has to be recognition citywide recognition of the value of having more biking in our city and let's embrace it as a goal for the city and help people understand why it's better for us. I think probably all of us, even we, even Brandon, a non-biker would probably love to see us on par with like Amsterdam, right? The paradise of bikers. 
And I was thinking about that in association with this Greenway and the controversy. And I was thinking, okay, I know there's fewer cars there and they probably go slower and they're because they're more on board and they understand it there. But also the bikers aren't probably the bikers in Amsterdam more considerate of the pedestrians too. I bet they are not speeding in quite the manner that ours are. So I do think that both the drivers and the bikers both need to get more on board with being more considerate of the entire mix. And Brandon, we got to get you some lessons to ride a bike, man. That's uh, <laughs> it's so much fun. You know what? It's a TV segment that's been pitched so often. I, I, uh, eventually, but, it's going to happen. One of those rating sweeps pieces. And Brandon learned to ride a bike. Hey, I, this was not, you know, I, I've got to, in full transparency to the listeners here, I was uh, thrown into this hosting duties with about five seconds before the podcast began. Um, but uh, I, I, I was thinking as I want to go on, I've been asking my readers uh, of the Picayune Sentinel for the best book that they read in 2023. And I will expand that if if a book doesn't come to mind, what the best TV show you saw was in 2023 and no fair saying the bear because everybody loves the bear. The bear won every Emmy award there was the other night and deservedly so. But aside from the bear, what book or TV show from 2023 did you like the most? I will go first to give you a little bit of chance to think about what yours was. And and my favorite book of last year was uh, Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen. It's a couple of years old. It's a wonderful story of a family set in a fictional southern suburb of Chicago. Uh, it's one of these sprawling family sagas. It's only the first book in a planned trilogy, but it, it is a satisfying read all by itself. And uh, I really recommend it. Franzen aspires to be the great American novelist, and I think that he actually is. So who wants to go next? I've got a TV show. I, I, I hate to hate to say I don't read as many long books as I'd like to. TV wise, can't say the bear, so I'll say Shrinking on Apple TV. Stars Harrison Ford, um, Jason Segel, Jessica Williams. Um, it's about a therapist who needs therapy but doesn't realize it. He's gone through a lot of traumatic stuff, and he's just pushing along, and he's doing his work of being a great therapist and is realizing it's seeping into him not being a great therapist because he needs help himself. Uh, Harrison Ford plays another therapist who's helping him guide him along. It's got humor. It's got heart. It got some Emmy nominations for the cast. Many thought Harrison Ford got snubbed. I am one of those people. It's one of Harrison Ford's most hilarious and human roles he's ever played. Um, so I say if you want to check out something cool, Shrinking on Apple TV, season two, coming out soon. Okay, Marge? The book that I've been recommending all year is Deacon King Kong by James McBride. He's a terrific writer. And uh, this is a story takes place in the 60s in the projects. And it's one of those that intertwines a lot of different lives. Um, and they all come together at the end in an interesting way. It's entertaining. It's funny. It's also a serious commentary on life in the projects in the 60s and people who seem the lead character is a drunk who shoots a guy in the opening chapter and you learn about why and what happens and why the community embraces him uh, throughout. If I could throw in just a second, I just finished the one book, one city, one city, one book. What is it called? The city book called There, There, which is more like there, there, like, is there any there, there? 
it's about native experiences and takes place in a around a powwow in Oakland. Also, a lot of heart, a lot of emotion, and some entertainment. Have you read uh, James McBride's The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, which I think is is the book after Deacon King Kong? I have not. My Kindle thinks I should because they keep pitching it to me every time I open it up. So I think it's coming soon. Kate, what do you what do you got uh, on the bookshelf or the on the streaming list? Bookshelf wise, I was late to this because it was also a one Chicago one book or whatever the heck it's called selection. But I think probably two years ago, uh, Bedrock Faith by Charles Eric May, and it, it is a wonderful minute look at a fictional neighborhood which is uh based on morgan park i i I believe and what happens when a kid who grew up there and went wrong suddenly appears back in their midst and um you know don't want to give anything away but it's just a wonderful look at this fictional but based on reality sort of uh community over there and streaming wise, I got to go with Severance. Severance is on Apple, and oh my god, I've already watched it all the way through twice because mm-hmm. I watched it through with one set of friends, and I'm, then I said to my husband, "I know you don't like to watch things that I've already watched. I don't care. You're watching this with me again." When is the next season of Severance coming out? Do I, you know? I don't know, but I cannot wait. It so is it's coming. been delayed a little bit. Um, because of some issues with writers and stuff like that. I almost said Severance, but then it's been so long, I thought it was 2022, not 2023. So, I don't know, maybe it doesn't count for 2023, but I'm still upset. I think it does. I think it does. It's kind of a science fiction premise, which is my husband tends to be against such things. But if you are against such things, all I can say is watch the first episode and you will totally get past that. I did not, but okay. You I think you need you need to watch TV with my husband, and maybe I'll watch TV with yours. <laughs> <laughs> we well, have my that. husband did get past it. Try the second episode. Try two episodes, Marge. All right, yeah. I'll give it a little more. But otherwise, I'll throw in my favorite or one of my. There's so many good things this year, but I love Slow Horses. And if you oh, haven't too. seen that, there's a new season coming out any day now. I think. Um, oh, the third I, season's I, I, already come and gone, Marge. I've already watched it. New season? This- yes, the third season's already been available on uh, the entire thing on, on Apple TV. We must be a year behind Britain. Uh, you know, they're, they're obviously important from, from Britain because they sh- they showed the previews for season four. But that they won't come for another year. Yeah. Great with Gary Oldman in the lead as an old yes. um, spy, Cold War spy, who's now in charge of a like satellite mm-hmm. office of uh, the Britain um, MI5. And uh, it's supposed to be for a bunch of losers. But of course, they all turn out to be terrific oh, when they yeah. get pulled into something. And I've heard of this. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good show. You know, the Succession won a whole bunch of Emmys the other night, too. But speaking of shows that you watch an episode and you don't like it and, and then you come back to it later, Johanna and I are both are now watching Reservation Dogs. Which is we watched the first episode maybe a year or so ago and we're like ah eh, not so much didn't care for it that much and then everyone started talking about how much they liked it so we said well let's give it a couple episodes and this is one of these shows where I think you need to watch like two or three episodes and then you get totally hooked I think it's just a, a wonderfully conceived and wonderfully acted show and it's only 
I think it's like 26 or 28 total episodes, which is which is about my speed. I, I don't want to get involved in something like that's going to go on for 120 episodes. I'm not going to get into like Grey's Anatomy or something like that. I, I want mm. something that's going to start <laughs> and stop. And this is going to we're, we're we're wrapping up the last season, but it's a terrific show. Anyway, that was Kate Plies, Marge Halpern, and Brandon Pope on the Mincing Rascals. I'm Eric Zorn. Before we in- go, Eric, I, w- I will oh, I will say my belated, very belated congratulations to oh your Michigan Wolverines. It's it's only fair, <laughs> only it's fair. very gracious. I I taunted you last week in absentia, uh, Brandon. So I thought that it wouldn't be fair for me to do it again. But yeah, it was quite something. Michigan winning the national championship, and uh, I got to watch. the watch it with my 92 year old dad which was really really fun he's a mincing rascals listener so hi dad uh anyway again kate plies march halpern brandon pope i'm eric zorn sitting in for john williams this has been the mincing rascals we're produced by pete zimmerman we will be airing some of this i believe maybe saturday night at eight o'clock on wgn am 720 and we will drop another podcast on you next week thanks everybody boom Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 